Welcome back to the backdrop on Told Stories in Golf. Hey, Professor, good morning. I am so excited. Let's keep this intro short today. I'm excited to get to our guests. You know, we, we on the relaunch this year, we wanted this to be an educative pod where we get to learn stuff. And yep. that's, I'm just, I'm so ignorant on what we're about to talk about in terms oh. of like, I know enough to be just a little bit dangerous, but we actually have a true, you know, expert in this world to, to educate us and really paint a picture that I think we all need painted. Um, I am act- extra caffeinated because I'm sitting with two brilliant minds today and I got to make sure that the synapses are firing. I want to, I want to come off, you know, I know I come off as the, the, uh, chuckle head, you know, on this one, but, uh, I, I really, have, I've thought a little bit about this topic. I'm so excited to talk to a expert in this field. So yeah, thank great booking professor job. Well done. The Josh Ralston will be talking to you here shortly. Um, any fun fact for the day? Yeah. Or should we just just get to it? You know, like how often when you're going down an elevator, you see a guy like, oh, practice rehearsing his golf swing, right? He's doing a little move. If people can see me, I'm like, yep, yep, we're doing the move, right? We all do that. I'm sure our guest that's going to be coming on sits in his office at the University of Edinburgh just working that move. I know he's been super dedicated to his game in the last year, year and a half, and see huge strides. And we all make fun of that person. We do it too. Our wives make fun of us, right? There's actually something to that. Um in terms of any improvement of a physical skill, like visualization, even if you're not even doing the physical move, but visualizing and stepping through that move in your mind's eye actually has been shown to to give improvement. We have academic research on this. Now, what you don't want to do typically is replace physical practice with it. So like let's say you're doing 10 hours of practice a week. Don't do like five mental visualization and five physical no. Dedicate as much as you can to actually the physical practice. But if you have extra time, you know, you're sitting there and you're riding on an elevator or whatever, man, visualize that golf swing. Or you're in your office rather than watching the YouTube or going down the YouTube rabbit hole and wasting time at work. Visualize that golf swing, man. Visualize, yeah, do your mental reps. That will actually help you out. So, you know, visualization is a powerful tool. Visualization, I've always known that you are a fan of visualization. And I'll call (laughs) you out with this story. Kevin in college, uh, think of a college golf fan, you know, a bunch of stinky, smelly college golfers. We, we were headed to the golf course one day, and uh, Kevin Kevin loved to snooze. It was probably all the the sugar intake you had in in college that you would crash hard. But Kevin loved a good nap. He 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 liked ten, to get still his, love a good five to ten minute nap. He, he loved a good nap, and uh, he he closed his eyes, and we're on the way to you know competitive round of golf. Everyone's lacing up their their boots and getting ready, and and uh, Kevin was just asleep. And so the coach was not happy with that. So the coach yelled back like, Kevin, get your ass out of there. And Kevin just, huh? He said, I'm visualizing. Coach, I'm visualizing. Come on. I'm visualizing. He was dead asleep. I just, I love that. I'm visualizing. I still, we're going to El Diablo, right? (laughs) Hating golf. We're pulling in. Do you remember the song that came on? Hello, Darkness, My Old, old friend, friend by Simon and Garfunkel. Our first, our first term in the spring, we all look at each other like, here we go again. Yep. We're back. Yeah. We're back in hell. I'm glad we're in a better place with golf. And speaking of better places, this Ooh, there's no guest better place. is in maybe the best place for golf. So uh, that's, let's get to say it. thank you. Let's say thank you to our uh, sponsor of the podcast podcast this month, uh, the NB5 Invitational. They got a new date and the path to PGA Tour runs through Glenview, Illinois, when NB5 Invitational presented by Old National Bank returns to the Glen Club on July 25th through 30th. Uh, the Corn Ferry Tour season is heating up and the game's future stars are competing for a coveted spot at the next level. All proceeds will benefit the Evans Scholars Foundation. They do unbelievable work for, mm. for youth caddies. I mean, the opportunities they give these kids is uh, life-changing, uh, very literally. So tick 
tickets, upgraded fan experiences, and some volunteer opportunities are all available at nv5invitational.com. Get out there and support them, people, and, and watch some good golf. Talk about visualizing. Get out there with your Corona at that little Corona setup they have and visualize your own golf game while you watch some good golf. Those guys are out there. Careers on the careers truly on the line, right? Chasing their dream and, and getting it. And they, they, I know they it means something to see people in that crowd cheering them on. So, yeah. So go see. Sure. Let's get to the show. Josh Ralston, welcome to the backdrop. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Good to see you guys both, uh, even if it's not here in Scotland. Yeah, speaking, you know, we just I said, wish it was. Yeah, our happy places and all that, you know, for if we release some clips, I'll see your little sweatshirt. Tell everyone what your home club is. Uh, I'm a member of North Berwick, uh, West Links, uh, the club that was founded in 1832, but there's been golf there for even longer, so I'm a, I'm a lucky boy. Yeah, so for all those people that have met some professors out there, they always talk about the the luxuries of professional life and maybe moving internationally and getting to university. And I just want to point out Josh did that. He he said, I'm, I'm moving, and he chose a perfect place. Um, but I got to ask you something about North Berwick, right? How long until the PIF buys North Berwick in order to continue diversifying their economy? When When's this happening, and are you keeping your membership? Just makes sense. It's a good investment. I mean, the, the, the challenge of North Berwick uh, is that the land is actually owned mostly by the council, so they would have to buy out the, the, the government. Uh, there's some other clubs that are totally private uh, throughout Scotland, you know, maybe Turnberry, for instance, uh, that might be a better investment for their money. But uh, hopefully if they do buy it, uh, I'll, have a, I'll have a moral quandary on my hands. Uh, I mean, what's that? It's just like a couple live events, right? For for a place like that, they could buy a council. No, no big deal. Yeah, exactly. They they wouldn't have any problem. The council could probably use it to fit all, fix all the potholes all over uh, Edinburgh and Scotland, anyway. So, Josh, we, we we got to hang out when I was there. I know you, Kevin's played with you more than I have, but I got to just chat with you online and then share a beer. Uh, what, what is the best part of living in North Berwick and being a golfer? I mean, I know you're a sicko just like the rest of us, but what 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 is the best part to you? Yeah, I think it's hard to be uh, a summer's evening uh, when you can tee off at 7 p.m., still finish, the sun's setting down the back at 9. Uh, my favorite place in golf is actually the 12th hole at North Berwick, which doesn't get as much uh, love, but the view looking back over the sunset. Uh, that's one part. I mean, the other thing is it's, it's, it's a really casual place where your kids can learn to play uh, your kids can actually learn to ride their bikes, um, even on the course, which happened with my daughter on the third fairway. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, a lot more laid back than maybe you would notice when you're coming through, um, on, on the tours. And also, I mean, actually weirdly winter golf, uh, cause there's not as many tourists and we're out there by ourselves, even in the freezing cold, we all play no matter what. How, how sick of you are the, to- of the tourists? I mean, you know, Jim Hartzell connected us. I think I've connected you to Craig Mikowski. I'm sure that's connected to 22 people. I, I, we keep you, sending everybody yeah, your way. When, when are you just going to turn on, like get a new phone and be like, new phone, who dis? And like, you just don't even recognize us. Yeah. I mean, I love hosting people, uh, especially if you feel like they are keen on golf and on learning about the culture and the place, you know, the transactionary things I want to check off the top 100. I tend not to respond to those. Um, but the other great thing about not just Scotland, but I'm going down to England next week for for 
five rounds of golf is that there's a real tradition of us sort of sharing. I'll host somebody from Hoylake, Royal Liverpool, uh, back in April. And now me and my friend are going down there to play a four ball uh, just a couple weeks before they close it for the for the Open. So there's a lot of that too, not just the uh, American tourists. The biggest problem for me is that as an American with an American accent, there's one guy at, at North Barrick. I've been a member for five years. Uh, he's like the guy that greets you uh, at, at at the entry. He's not there during the winter because there's not tourists. For five years, he's asked me, you know, welcome North Barrick. This is your first time playing. So now with Martin, who's the head pro and I, it's like a running joke. Will Pat ever recognize that I'm actually live here and not just a visitor? So that that part gets a little obnoxious. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we have you on for, for some expertise today and I, I'm really excited to, to learn. I think Kevin said that in our intro, um, Josh, could you give maybe our, our audience, the listener, a little bit background on, on you and, and your, uh, vocation, your, your work at uh, the university, what you specialize in? Yeah. So I'm a academic, um, in the States, I would be called a professor, but here in the UK, we hold out that term for a full professor. I'm a reader, which would be an associate professor. Uh, and my area of expertise is, uh, Islam, Christianity, and secularism, uh, especially religion and politics between the Middle East and the West. Uh, so obviously, uh, over the last year and a half with the rise of live and questions about the Saudis and the PIF, I have these two areas of my life kind of, um, coming together, my love of golf and interest in golf, but on the other hand, uh, deep knowledge of Islam, of the Arab world. Uh, I've lived in both Egypt and in Israel, Palestine. I speak Arabic. I've been to Jordan, to Qatar, to the UAE, to Lebanon, to Turkey. Um, so my area of research is really this area. So I, I look forward to sort of talking uh, about some of this and, and some of the things that you hear, I mean, there, there's accuracies, um, but there's also a tendency, especially when we're talking about the Middle East, to sort of paint in really broad brushstrokes. So Kevin and I were texting and I was getting a little frustrated at some of the, um, you know, stereotypes often have some truth, but they often uh, are simplistic in, in helping us understand the complexity of what's going on right now with, with Saudi, with um, sports. Yeah. So well, let's just kick it off. And I'm going to ask a very broad question and let you take us where you want to take us, Josh, because of exactly what you, you talked about, right? I think from the outside perspective, and more weird, what you and I initiated conversation, like so much of the conversation on Twitter and within the worlds we live with, and at least me and Matt, without the broader picture that you have is, this is all, all the conversation has been about golf, right? And this is obviously such a bigger topic than that. So let's just kick it off and you take us where you want to take us. So paint us a picture of the Middle East and its realities, right? And I know a lot that you bring up is also the relationship between the Saudis and the UAE. And that's a big piece in this too. So let's just start with that real broad question. You know, paint as a reality as you see it that, that you think is important to talk about. Yeah. I think one of the things to start off with is the, the Middle East, even as a term is uh, much more opaque and complicated than we, we think about. So it can uh, include everything from say maybe, maybe Pakistan to Morocco sometimes. This is a huge swath of people, very diverse cultures, different languages. Even if we were just to narrow it down to the places that I think more often come to people's heads, so Saudi, the UAE, Egypt, Turkey, Israel, Palestine, uh, Iran, Iraq, um, that's still a really diverse area. And even if we get smaller, and we're talking just about those places that 
Arabic's the primary language. There's huge cultural differences between, say, Egypt and Saudi. Um, but one of the things that ends up happening often is that we paint these in broad brushstrokes. Um, so that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is, um, you know, these are internally complex places that are trying to uh, have their own reasons for engaging with sports, uh, engaging with economics, transportation that aren't always just about um, sports washing, but are about their own internal politics, their own rivalries. Um, we tend to read everything either through the U.S. or through Europe, um, but there's a lot going on uh, between Saudi, Iran, the UAE, uh, its relationship to China and Russia that are kind of in the backdrop of what's going on with 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 live golf in terms of this particular context. So um, I'm not saying everyone has to be an expert on this at all, um, but I think it's helpful to sort of put it in a broader context and not always just rely on the same sort of tropes about sports washing, uh, 9-11, which tend to be the two dominant ways of thinking about it. Yeah, so let's – you brought the 9-11 one. Let's start with that trope. You know, what's – What's your, I don't know what how to ask this, your assessment of it, as well as like your actual read and with, you know, your expertise, what role does 9-11, should that narrative play in that, I mean, event, that dramatic event for the United States play in terms of this ongoing shift in the sports and golf landscape? Um, and then what are some of maybe the generalizations or just misappropriations that occur in that conversation? Yeah, I'll try to be as, as brief as possible, but we're talking about a seminal event that not only transformed the United States, but transformed the world uh, in part through the U.S. and other allies' so-called war on terror. So you have the response in Afghanistan, you have the invasion uh, in Iraq, and a whole host of other events that 9-11 also kicked off. Uh, in this case, more specifically, it's the relationship between uh, the terrorist acts of al-Qaeda on the one hand, and the Saudi governments on the other. Uh, and one of the things, uh, this is a complicated situation, obviously, Osama bin Laden is from Saudi, but he had lost his citizenship. Part of Al-Qaeda's critique uh, was that Saudi had allowed the U.S. to have military bases uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. So he was one of, one of the things about Al-Qaeda was that there was a critique of the U.S.'s presence there. Uh, the Saudi government has long been an ally uh, to the U.S. in terms of the first Gulf War. Um, so we have a much more complicated history. Now, obviously, I think it was 15 of the 19, if I remember correctly, uh, perpetrators were Saudi citizens. Bin Laden is Saudi. Um, and so there is a tendency, as we've seen, to sort of uh, tar the Saudi government or all of the Saudi people with 9-11. Um, and that's also part of a broader way of thinking, not just about Saudis, but often of, of Muslims everywhere, not just in the Middle East, that somehow they um, are guilty of this um, or, or at least cheered it on, which, which is not um, accurate. I'm not saying that there weren't some people that were. Uh, and so I think the decision to include the 9-11 families and to, and to talk about do you have to apologize or Brandel Chambly's uh, recurrent refrains about 9-11? For me, I don't find them helpful. I think um, as far as we know, especially the current Saudi power with uh, Hamid bin Salman or MBS, uh, I mean, he was, what, 15 or 16 at the time when this is happening. Uh, the Saudi government has never been shown to be actively involved in 9-11 
there may have been people that were aware. So the, the notion that um, these are the perpetrators of of 9-11 uh, and therefore we shouldn't take their money, I find a, a pretty simplistic way of thinking both about the real terror of 9-11, uh, but it also can obscure us to real critiques that we might have of what's happening with the PIF and Saudi. So um, for me, the 9-11 discourse is actually more distracting than helpful. It, it, it relies on certain broad stereotypes and doesn't help us uh, think about uh, what's really going on with Saudi right now. Uh, I'll follow up to that, just terrorist activity, and this is from my own ignorance. In Saudi today, I mean, I think there's there's terrorist activity in every country, right? And that's monitored by uh, organizations like the CIA. But like, what what is the the level of you know that in in Saudi Arabia today? Yeah. So um, this is hopefully not too too much, but the the Saudi. Uh, Al Saud, the family and the, the ruling family, which goes back to the 1700s, but the modern Saudi state really is in, from the 1920s, 1930s. But how the Al Sauds came to power was a, a certain family on the eastern part of the Arabian Peninsula who were uh, in alignment with someone named Abdul Wahab, who was a sort of reformist, um, very strict uh, cleric who was calling for reform and change in Islam and was very critical of other Muslim practices. So going back almost 300 years, you have a, a very uh, often literalist and strict interpretation of Islam that helped form the Saudi government uh, and the modern state. And the fact that now that Saudi state is also in control of Mecca and Medina, the two most important sites in Islam, only adds to this. And then they have then, um, they don't do this anymore, but especially in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, they were very influential at uh, spreading this particular brand, often called Wahhabi or Salafi Islam to other places. Give you a concrete example, here in Edinburgh, the first purpose-built mosque, which is right next to the University of Edinburgh, was originally being um, developed by South, people of South Asian descent to be a local mosque. They ran out of money. Who came in? The Saudis uh, to help them finish building the mosque. But in exchange, they sent their own imams or preachers. Right, And so uh, you have this long tradition. Now, these groups, while having a very conservative or uh, they, they focus really strongly on only the Quran and the practices of the prophet. So uh, this interpretation has expanded all over the world. And some of these groups, not all of them, uh, are uh, participate in sort of acts of jihad, um, right? So, so that's not an answer to your question, but that's to paint the broader picture. Yeah. But uh, to, so that's that's been part of this. So there was, for instance, one of these groups that attacked Mecca themselves back in the 70s, and then the Saudis had to kick them out. So there's always been an alliance between the Saudis and this form of Islam, which isn't necessarily jihadi. I'm not, it isn't. Uh, but it is pretty conservative and often can lead to this. So that's one thing to say. Um, the other thing to say is that you can't understand the rise of um, Mohammed bin Salman or MBS or the UAE uh, without taking into consideration actually their interest in suppressing um, 
forms of political Islam after the Arab Spring. Okay, so they, since 2011, and especially since um, MBS came to power, uh, have been actively involved in trying to to eliminate uh, anything related to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so in terms of the, this, the question about terrorist activity within uh, Saudi, uh, it's very little because you have uh, a very top-down bureaucratic state that will um, suppress any dissidents. These dissidents could be dissidents from what we would call liberal positions. Uh, they want more rights for women. Uh, they want more rights for Shias, uh, who are not the dominant uh, position in Sunnis, uh, Sunni Saudi, uh, or they could be people like the Muslim Brotherhood, right? So those are both being oppressed. So um, it's not so much that there's a lot of terrorism in in, uh, in Saudi. That's probably not the best way of thinking about it. Um, but that the Saudi has a long history of entanglement with forms of Islam that have not let that they don't necessitate terrorism, but some of them have carried out this. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, that helps me, you know, just it's uh, it's, it's much deeper than the 20-year event because I think, I think that's what people hold on to, right, is that 20 years ago, there was that direct involvement. Their, their nationalists were, were there. But that, that, that tells a different uh, – it, it, it tells where more where, where it is today. Yeah, and I, I mean, there were Saudis there. Whether or not the Saudi government uh, was involved, I think, is the distinction that I think is important, right? Like, mm. are we guilty of every uh, act of gun violence that the Americans Americans do, right? Like, Americans commit gun violence. That doesn't mean the American. I mean, we can debate this, right? right. Um, and so that's part of the issue. Is is it? It is a little bit opaque. It, we're we're not a hundred percent sure. Although the, the U.S. government did say that the Saudis weren't involved as a government. Mm-hmm. Um, but 15 of their people perpetrated it. And of course, Osama bin Laden uh, is Saudi, um, although he was exiled from the country decades earlier. Yeah. What about the, the, the other trope? And, and sorry, Professor, I know you got so many questions, but uh, the term sports washing, right? If I'm just scrolling Twitter, it's what we hear most. Um, I'll ask it this way. What other... Motives. You said it's it's more complicated than what what people are saying, and I think what other motives do Saudi Arabia have? The PIF. What other motives do you think that that are are there besides sports washing? Because I think I think you know that's what we hear, right? That's why they're doing it. That's why they have Newcastle. That's why they they are getting golf is sports washing. But like, what are the deep you know what are the deeper reasons or other reasons that yeah. Come to mind. I, I think for me, I mean, just to be a little clearer, like I'm, I'm very much a both and thinker. I'm not mm-hmm. a. It's either sports washing or it's uh, not. Um, true, it's so true academic, Josh. Did you yeah. say one? Typical <laughs> academic. Yeah, uh, my tweets would be better if I could just have. Yeah, I've learned look, just not to tweet. So, I mean, I just and I learned that lesson again yesterday. Just yeah. like, complex discussions aren't. Twitter's not made for them. Yeah, especially now. They, uh, yeah, so I would say that the Saudis and also the United Arab Emirates, um, we can talk a little bit about this, um, are both uh, states that came to significant cultural power via uh, oil revenue. And you can add Qatar in there too. These are places that historically, even in the Arabic-speaking world, outside of Mecca and Medina, were 
were of far less significance politically than places like Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Iran. But in the you know from the last 50, 70 years, they've made significant amounts of money and transformed because of oil. Uh, and so part of what they are trying to do, uh, both UAE, Qatar, and uh, and Saudi, is to find ways to use the revenue from oil to transform their economies so that they're not solely relying on that. And one of the big ways that, that they've done it, all three countries, uh, is through soft power. We can call it sports washing, uh, which is to... Uh, change the perceptions of their countries, especially Saudi, because they probably have the the worst perception of the three. They are also kind of latest in the game of the three to do this, right? So Qatar uh, and UAE uh, were were much earlier on this on this agenda in terms of buying Man City or PSG for the football slash soccer friends out there, um, and Saudi's been later to that game in terms of of Newcastle uh, buying a bunch of retired footballers and bringing the Saudi league, Cristiano Ronaldo, F1, et cetera. But this is part of, of soft power. Sports has often been used as a, as a source of soft power. Uh, uh, American tours uh, with basketball or baseball or American football uh, selling of Coca-Cola. Now those aren't exactly done by the, the distinction with the Saudis is that this is not just done by a company in Saudi, but by their sovereign investment fund. Right. So American sports culture has been exported all over the world as an instrument of soft power. It is to improve ourselves. Think about the Cold War. Uh, what makes this different is that the sovereign investment fund, uh, wealth fund or the PIF, uh, is revenue owned by the Saudi state and more specifically by uh, Hamid bin Salman and and his family. Um, so that's, I think, some of the distinction. But part of what they're trying to do is also change their own economy. Uh, they're trying to put themselves um, in the center of global power in relationship to China and to Russia. Um, they both are in places where global flights make a lot of sense as a connection point. Uh, they're looking east. Uh, they are located in a place that makes relationships to India, now the most populous country in the world, much easier. And so part of this is both in terms of facing westward, uh, improving their relationship, but also more primarily, it's, it's about local and, uh, and regional power. Josh, following up on that, this distinction between, you know, when it's a government entity um, partaking in this initiative versus a, a corporate entity, do you see, in what ways do you see that as an important distinction to make um, as it relates to the ongoing situation? Yeah, I think um, one of the challenges, uh, I mean, we live in an ethically complex world, um, and uh, we've heard a lot about capitalism over the last few years, even people who've decided to stay for the PGA Tour. For instance, one of my favorite players, Will Zalatoris, anytime he would justify uh, not going, he would continually insist that, yeah, but I'm I'm the most capitalist of capitalists. But we're also seeing a little bit of the um, limits of of some forms of capitalism. That essentially Saudi has more money than us. Uh, well, not than the U.S. as a whole, but they have a, a great deal, billions of dollars that are invested in the hands of a few significant people, so they can outlast a devolved company or a a sports institution. Um, it happened 
in Newcastle with them continuing to push the Premier League. And because there's the lack of um, of governance, the lack of boards, uh, they, they and they have a patience to be willing to play this out. So I think that's one thing. Uh, you can you can boycott or decide not to uh, buy Coca Cola or Nike or whatever company that you want, maybe because you don't like their politics or you don't like the, their relation to the U.S. But they're not directly representing the U.S. in a way that the PIF directly represents the interests of the Saudi government in general. And um, I'm using MBS as a sort of fill-in for that leadership more specifically. Um, and as we know, not just from the uh, Khazoji uh, assassination, but also through a host of other activities, again, not just LGBTQ or or liberals, but also his oppression and, and uh, imprisonment and torture of Shia clerics or uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, he has uh, strong evidence of being uh, 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 someone who suppresses freedom of, uh, of religion, freedom of speech uh, at, in, in a deeply sinister way. So for me, that's, that's the distinction. And I mean, to give to give a, a concrete example, I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan. I went to uh, my first match with my daughter at their new stadium. They happen to be Newcastle. Uh, and you have now Newcastle with a away kit or jersey that looks like the Saudi flag. And in fact, you had Newcastle fans waving the Saudi flag in the, in the away stands, right? So there is clearly uh, a recognition of the connection between this. Yeah, Go for so, it, Matt. I know you got it. I know yeah, you got a question you want to ask. Well, Go. no, it's 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 the, the biggest for me, Josh, and all this, and and the professor knows is uh, yeah the human rights violations, right? And the, the, what's all oh, what's potentially ongoing. I, I I read about that, and it really, uh, like most people, I imagine, is the point of of conflict with their involvement in in my beloved game. Uh, even though my beloved game is not the professional game, it's still attached to it, whether I like it or not. And so the human rights stuff, I, I, I think the question there is, you know, we hear a lot about it with doing business with Saudi Arabia and, and you know, who's who needs to own up to those human rights violations. And uh, how do you see that as, as a relevant, relevant consideration in all this? And in, in what way should we be thinking about, you know, the human rights in terms of the, the realities of Saudi Arabia and those that are, um, you know, living under that regime? Yeah, I, this is this is a, a complicated one for me um, for a host of reasons, because I think two things kind of come together uh, that I, I want to disentangle. One is, this is not to answer the human rights. One is that there is sometimes a tendency uh, of not just Americans, but also of Europeans um, to sort of stand in judgment of the way that other people choose to live their lives. Uh, whether and, and often this, these are Muslims, right? That if they choose to wear hijab, especially women, they must be being oppressed, even though there may be uh, ample evidence that they're choosing this out of their own religious conviction and may in fact be uh, very feminist in a whole host of other ways. Um, so there, there's two things that are often happening. One is there's a, there is a longstanding um, stereotypes that we have of Muslims that lead into us saying, well, they, if they're not like us, they must not have human rights. And I want to push back against that and say that 
um, again, Muslims in general. And, and because Saudi has Mecca and, and Medina, because they were involved in 9-11, for many Americans, they become the image of all, all Muslims everywhere. And just to say, it's not that way. There's a lot more complexity, freedom, debate than, than is image. That's one thing to say. The second thing to say is there is still Quick, quickly on that, said yeah, another way is there. There's a lot of in human rights violations, right? When you see that on Twitter, is that there's there's some racism in that. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, there's. Uh, I had a undergraduate student of mine who wrote his. Every British student has to write a dissertation or a final project, and he was looking at Muslims in English football, English soccer, and the various ways that perceptions of, especially here in the UK, they're often from South Asia, so Pakistani or Indian descent, perceptions of them, racism of them, uh, there is a lack of access into higher levels of this, right? So this this goes on. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's perceptions that have. So on the one hand, I want to say, if what we're talking about is, oh, these backwards Muslims, which you have, if you look at Twitter, this often is the case that gets on my, that gets under my skin. So I want to say that. I also want to say that doesn't mean that we also can't critique the fact that there are uh, human rights violations done not only by the Saudis, uh, but also uh, by a number of other countries that Gulf has relationships with and doesn't seem to have a problem with. For instance, uh, I've said this before, the UAE, both Abu Dhabi and Dubai are uh, huge sites of, of golf, of tourism. Um, they've done a much better job of, of soft power or sports washing for a host of reasons. But um, MBZ or MBA, MBZ, uh, Mohammed bin uh, uh, Zayef, who is the head of, of the Emirates, who actually was instrumental in putting MBS uh, into power, although they've fallen out recently, uh, there's also a significant amount of repression in in the Emirates, but it's done differently, right? Uh, so the, the human rights issue for me is a significant issue, and I'm and there are also human rights uh, issues that we are guilty of here in the UK, uh, but there is a significant distinction I think going on in in Saudi, which is that you have a uh, a person in power who will crush dissent, um, what it, where, wherever it comes from, left, middle, or right, uh, religious or secular. Um, he's uh, been involved in this. And so the question of not just some money, which, you know, money inevitably, probably my gasoline has some relationship to, to Saudi somewhere, but that it's signif this significant, this courted, to me, that is the much bigger issue than the, the discussion of 9-11. Now, of course, that does also raise other more complicated moral questions. Where do we draw the line? How do we draw the line? We live in a complex, messy world. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't draw the line somewhere. Uh, and and for I think for many of us, um, this is a line that seems beyond the pale because it's not just a Saudi company that may want to distance itself from the Saudi government. It may want to push back. It is in many ways uh, a very soft but strong arm of, this, of, of the powers. The, the, the uh, follow to that I, I have is, is, you know, a lot, I think the argument on the other side uh, that you hear a lot of is that, you know, these human rights violations, how do they get better? Well, 
they get better by, you know, our world's influence in it. So it's, it's like, yeah, they're influencing us, of course, with the PIF being, being involved, but, you know, maybe we can do some good and progress can happen if there's, you know, a closer understanding and a closer partnership. And I, what, what comes to my mind when I hear, you know, people make that argument is like, uh, you, you've heard, I'm going to use Lewis Hamilton as the example. Right, Kevin and I are big F1 fans, and uh, or like the 45 million other Americans that got into it, uh, big big in that way through Netflix. That that you know you, you hear his outward criticisms of gay rights uh, or, or the, the um, uh, oppression of, of gay rights in those countries, both uh, uh, when they're in Saudi Arabia or, or Dubai or wherever they're racing, and he wears the rainbow helmet. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. Like, you know, I'm, I stand up for my friends that are in that, that community. And, and I was like, okay, cool. What impact does that do though, Josh? Is there in throughout these countries, are they that, like, does that, does that make a difference is I guess my question. Yeah. Um, again, this is uh, a very complex one. Most likely change is going to come uh, and does come from within, uh, not from, Lewis Hamilton or Roy McElroy. Um, and I mean, that's the thing I also want to point out. There are Saudis of a variety of perspectives uh, that are pushing back against a, a host of, of these challenges, just like there was um, in Syria, uh, in Egypt, and they don't always map onto our politics or our human rights. Um, that said, there, that isn't to say that we can't be uh, allies or supporting these movements and these groups. Uh, to do that, though, you have to be in some sort of relationship and knowledge of that. Uh, and also, I think one other thing to say, I mean, it's, it's a different it, in terms of one of the things that you have to do is, is draw moral distinctions. You know, it's a different thing to be, uh, you know, a tour player and your stop happens to be in a place and and you don't like the laws that have changed in x state in the united states i won't get into that uh you know you have to make a decision what do you do you know but that that's slightly different um than a than a than than taking billions of dollars of investment from a government purposely by the pj now we can talk about whether that was necessary or not um I, i mentioned this to kevin last summer uh during the scottish open uh I hosted a couple of the caddies and ended up at dinner and, and with drinks with a few um, a few players, caddies, uh, a, a, an agent of a very well-known player, um, and they all wanted to ask me questions about this. And I did try to draw awareness of, okay, is there a difference between you guys going to Dubai and Abu Dhabi? How do you ethically think about it? And, and that they themselves were divided. Some of them said, well, if Saudis, if I already go to Dubai and Abu Dhabi, uh, so I might as well take the Saudi money. Others said, oh, I didn't know this about Abu Dhabi and Dubai. I'll need to think about it. Um, Others said, you know, I'm just a golfer. Totally fine. I I don't have the space to deal with geopolitics, Um, which which is also fine. They're being put, they're being asked to talk about a a complex place in nuanced ways. uh, And and that's okay. But I I do think just to say that there's also, I I mean, these were all players that um, I think, all stayed at the PJ Tour. Not all the caddies uh, players did, uh, but they were they were also trying to ask some of these questions. It wasn't just uh, the binaries. So I think that's one of the things that that's interesting to think about. I mean, we live, as I said, in a complex world. We do have to draw lines in the sand. Um, and and uh, the the challenge with me is like there's this weird way in which both real human rights abuses and 
sort of anti-Muslim or, or post 9-11 stereotypes of the Muslim world are getting kind of mapped onto each other. Um, and, and there's not, there's often a lack of, of, of awareness of our own limitations, our own failures, our own ways that we've been complicit um, as Americans with a lot of the things. I mean, we are allies with Saudi. We have been for decades. Um, so it's a little rich to have all of these people suddenly be upset about golf when they were fine when we had their oil or were using their military bases. Um, I, I'm willing to actually critique all of that, but that's 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 because I'm an academic and I live in La La Land. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great place to live, Josh. Right, that's always been my stance on it too. Like, you know, it's easy people are trying to dismiss it. Oh, we've always been involved with the Saudis, like, and they want to use that as a dismissive point. It's like, no, that's actually the thought raising point that you're making there is like, let's talk about that. That's actually addressed the last 25 years since um, the, the roar in Iraq and the Gulf War and really think about like, yeah, we have been complicit in a lot of things. And is that right? Uh, and again, that's where you've got to draw a line in the sand somewhere, right? You got to have conviction and, and draw that line. Yeah. That's why we need you guys, to be honest. The, the academics are the ones asking those questions. And I think when I when Kevin told me about your your uh, sitting down with a bunch of players, Josh, and and you guys were able to have that conversation, and oh, what caught, came to my mind was like, why isn't a Joshua Ralston at at a players meeting educating, like, you know, that pack should say, what do we know, guys? Like everyone is off saying. I mean, I can't believe how how strong of of these feelings. And yeah, they keep it around the business side of golf or the golf itself. But people spouting off without that knowledge. And I mean, that's part of what this is about here is just learn about it and have that awareness of it. Like the players need that because, I mean, imagine being in their position, not having this information and not having the people to ask these questions and give them the, 20, the, the deep history of that country and, and what the PIF actually means. I mean, that, that should be happening, right, more than it is. Yeah, and I, again um, – having having information uh in a accessible nuanced but not overly in-depth way uh can only help people discern their decisions and obviously it would be great if some of the people uh involved um had had a little bit more knowledge of, of these things going on it's interesting my wife uh is actually ceo of an ethics consulting firm that works with businesses um to and they actually are doing a lot of these things i can't name but these are very very large businesses who are trying to ethically think through if the saudi government asks us to help build the sustainable building in their new city how do we make an ethical decision if china invades uh taiwan uh, what do we do about this? Um, how do we deal with gender equality? How do we deal with moral di difference, right? Uh, these are Fortune 100 companies that are asking these questions. So it'd be great if the PGA Tour could ask a, a few of these as well. Great, great boy. I, I know we got to let you go. I, I did want to ask one last thing about the PIF specifically. A lot of the the articles now are, are either, I, I feel like they're they're casting the PIF as like this laser-focused, uh, uh, organization with really disciplined investors who who execute like on on every detail, and then other articles feel like you know this PIF is just unlimited money spent recklessly, and and they're doing it to to create influence and and no return required. I know it's a gray area. I know it's somewhere in between. But like, can you give us your you know short view on on the PIF as an investor? 
you know, what, what do you think their um, style is in a way? Yeah, I think um, let's maybe use a golf analogy. Uh, we've learned a lot about, uh, you know, aiming away from pins because our seven irons are not as precise as we, are, as we once thought. They have a scatter pattern. That's what the professor tries to tell me, but I think it's all he bullshit, doesn't Josh. listen. I'm not he, he doesn't no, believe it. No, okay, he never listens. So, to me. so the PIF is not a twenty handicap, uh, just spraying balls everywhere. Um, but it's not also like, uh, you know, the old vo- your your belief that you can you can you can draw in that seven iron from one seventy six and put it right on that back left pin. Uh, it, it's a little bit more like a plus four handicap who's got a dispersion pattern and it can live with that. Um, and it's willing to spend that money. Just think about, I mean, and golf is not the most important thing for it. It's one of them because it gives them access to a lot of, uh, businesses, uh, but it's near, it's not nearly as significant as its investment in, in football slash soccer, which is a much bigger global sport. It's not just its buying of Newcastle, but, um, you know, theoretically Lionel Messi just turned down a billion dollars for two years to not go. Cristiano Ronaldo, Kareem Benzema, uh, Angola Conte. These are all very, very famous players that they are trying to buy uh, and have been successful at. Um, and so they're, they're doing that with a clear aim, recognizing that soccer is actually the biggest sport in the world, not golf, not basketball, not baseball. And they want to make uh, a road in that. And, and they're doing this in other things, investments in sustainable buildings, uh, e- you know, ecology, We'll, we'll see whether or not they, they go the airline route like uh, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, uh, and Emirates. I, I doubt it for a host of reasons. But, uh, yeah, so they're, they're not as – they're somewhere between the two, right? They're, they're still – they're willing to miss, uh, but they're not just they're not just uh, 20 handicap hacking out there. Thank you. That's – that. Gives me more insight than I've gotten on on <laughs> the analogies work right for my little pea brain. The golf analogies work. Josh, thank you so much for being with us, man. This was really a, a, a insightful and and timely uh, a chat with you. Um, but we got to let you go to the golf course. Uh, yeah. you got a big match tonight. Tell us yeah. about this match before we let you off. Yeah, I'm in the quarterfinals uh, of North Barracks Plate uh, Club Championship. I thought I was the 16th seed in the club championship, but there's a computer error, which bumped me down to the one seed in the plate. Uh, but that means I got a better chance of winning. Uh, so it's like I, I thought I was in the majors, but then I got sent down to AAA. But uh, yeah, so I've got a match uh, teeing off in about an hour and a half. Uh, as you know, we Scots, uh, I'm not a Scot, but we love to play our matches and our comps, uh, and it's its the height of the season. So we hopefully I'll be playing all weekend. Well, you're going to go, I'm going to predict, you're going to go win this flight, the plate, and then the motivation for next year. We're going to see you in that championship match. And you're not not—you're not going to just get bounced first round. I think you're going to get a couple wins next year too in that championship flight. That's, promotion, that's I'm putting right? that on your shoulders. So when we have you back on in a year, we're going to be talking about that. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, there we go. Uh, if I just keep up the swing changes in the golf blueprint, then I'll be good. Appreciate hey, that. Uh, Appreciate that uh, free ad. And, and, and we'll have you next time. I would love to have you back on. We can talk about this topic, which I know is not over. It's going to continue for a long time. But uh, I also love your perspective on the game of golf, Josh. I've really enjoyed following along with you. Can you share with some of the listeners of where they can find you on, on social? Because I, I love that, that element of it. It doesn't seem like you get into the politics and religion that you've studied, even though 
I'm sure that's always such a joy to always, when people ask you about that on the golf course, I'm sure you love that. But I, I love your perspective as American living in the home of golf. Like it's such a, uh, uh, it's really refreshing and it reminds me why I love the game. So where can folks find you? Yeah. Um, so most of my golf stuff is on Instagram at golf underscore Scotland. Uh, I post lots of stories about my matches or reflections on tournaments. Uh, I've also had the chance to play all over Scotland and play more and more in England, which I think is the most underrated place for golf uh, there is. Uh, I'm also on Twitter where I talk much more about theology, religion, politics, uh, but more and more about golf, uh, which is at JB Ralston. But for the golf, well, Instagram it is. Awesome. Thanks again, friend. We'll, uh, Thank you. We'll, we'll see you soon. Good. Go get them. Cheers. I'll tell you, Professor, I just, I, I love having you a part of my life because you bring a lot of intelligence and at make me ask a lot of uh, smarter questions than I typically would. And you're doing the same thing with this show. You really are. That guy, Joshua Ralston, he, I, I knew uh, he was a smart man after one tenants in, in North Berwick, but, um, talking to him now and, uh, uh, very few people have probably thought as much on this topic and its implications to our culture than, than, than others, not, not golf specifically, just, just, just culture, theology, politics. I mean, great, great guest, dude. I, what a good guy. Yeah. I appreciate I mean, I don't know how to say this tactfully in the sense of like in the academy, you become a professor. Like I think it just naturally breeds an ego of yourself, right? In the sense of you think you, you do think deeply about something, right? But then in, I, what I love about someone like Josh is when you run into that person, you're like, wow, like his thoughtfulness on a topic, I believe goes well beyond my thoughtfulness within my field, even I'm within, you know, mathematics and psychology, um, he's just so thoughtful. And every time I get to talk with him through text or this a venue like this or on the North Berwick links, West links, like, it's just like, wow, this, this dude, like that brain's going and going to learn something every time. And you know, that's what we wanted from this pod. So. Yeah. What, what he reminded me of is that, you know, it's easy to say things are being, uh, cast in a broad, uh, broad stroke and, and, uh, but I like my mind when I read about this stuff, like I, we have that human desire to simplify. Like I think, uh, you know, I've always been in business. And one thing that I've always tried to do is take like a very complex thing and whittle it down to three points, right? Mm -hmm. Most people can't remember much more than that. And I even do that when we're talking to guests, right? What are three things I'm trying to, to, to learn about here? And, and I think this happens with you a lot on the show, but it definitely happened with Josh as we talk about uh, Saudi Arabia and their influence in, in our golf is uh, he kind of, he's like, pump the brakes here. Like I, I, I get where you're trying to go, but it's complicated and there's no way around that. And I think our human instincts are, let's get around that. Let's, let's simplify this. Let's make a decision. That's, you know, and, and then that's how you end up with punchy headlines and you end up with all the things we've seen. Um, but, uh, I, I think if people, a uh, great example is things get clipped, hmm. press conferences get clipped, all these things get clipped. And I think what Josh reminded me of today is like, Hey, if you really care about this, which I do, I care about this. I, I'm not going to hide from that anymore. I want to talk about this. I want to learn about it. Um, well, you got to go learn about it. You can't take, there's no shortcut here, man. You can't just like 
listen to clips or see a, a tweet that has been highlighted because there's context and there's other things and you need to educate yourself. So um, it, it basically reminds me not to be lazy. Like if you do want to have an opinion on this, then go, go read about the 25 year history of, you know, our relationship with United Arab Emirates, uh, which I haven't heard mentioned in any of this. Go, go look at, you know, um, the, the same timeline with Saudi Arabia. And that's what, you know, I think Josh is, is alluding to is like, uh, do, do the work. You know, yeah. le- learn about this before everybody starts spouting out. Yeah, that that you just my major takeaway is the same point. Like, you know, if you got a buddy that knows this stuff, like Josh, right, call him up and just hey, give me the rundown, right? Like, what should I, it, just give me the rundown on the complexities of these issues? Because frankly, Twitter's like for a complex issue like this, like even judging the actions of say a Rory or a Brooks Kepka, like. Twitter is not the vehicle for that. I know we, our previous guest, Sean Martin, and I have discussed this a lot. Like, we miss long-form journalism, right? Long-form articles that address this and really paint a picture. Like, the longest form you get anymore is somewhere between 800 and 1,200 words. And that's not, doesn't give justice to the, a situation like this at all. And there's, I walked away from this, you know, in some recent conversations on Twitter trying to have around this situation realized, like, there's no hope of our social media platforms enabling a productive conversation around a complex issue like this. Like, that's just not a place to engage with this issue, think about it, even form opinions, I, I think, at this point. I think that's where I stand now. Like, mm. it's not, I don't even think it's a productive news source um, for a complex issue like this because around, on, you know, it's, it's about golf, right? But it's not at all. And all you see on, like, it's easy to, like you said, simple, simplify this about live in the PGA Tour, where no, like Josh was every time, like you tell, he never talked about the PGA Tour live. We didn't even tell, yeah. Like, like, like I was is, expecting that's what we'd be talking about here, but no, that's not no, what this, this is. A, this is a chess piece within a much yeah. bigger picture. Um, so yeah, it's easiest for us to get lost in the, what's this mean for golf and our love of it when it's like, no, that's not what we should be talking about. Um, yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you yeah, to Josh. No, great. great. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yeah, it was fun. Um, everybody, uh, please give some attention to the Corn Ferry Tour, right? I know we're all talking live. We're yeah, talking let's go PGA back. To, let's go back in the golf now. Let's. The Corn Ferry Tour has uh, still, you know, I, I think, I mean, they're part of this umbrella company, right? And and it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. But one thing I've always um, one reason I'm a big fan of professional golf is the stories that break through. And, and being a part of it early on, you know, and there's uh, uh, no better place to check that out than the Corn Ferry Tour. And uh, that's why a partner of this show and, and, and for New Club is the MV5 Invitational, which happens in Chicago. It's at Glenville, Illinois, uh, presented by Old National Bank. It heads to the Glen Club, a place that we always enjoy, one of my favorite Fazios in the Chicagoland area. And it's on July 25th through 30th. So uh, the Corn Ferry Tour is heating up at this time of year. This is always one of their most coveted events. And all proceeds from the event go to Evan Scholars Foundation and Youth Caddies. Uh, the tickets, upgraded fan experiences, and some volunteer opportunities are all available at nb5invitational.com. Professor, thanks for the chat this week. Looking forward to the next one. Great episode. Have a great week, guys.